Chapter 19 of Up the River by Oliver Optic A Search for the Lost Treasure This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The two steamers had passed the bend of the river, and we had gone by Forts Jackson and St. Philip without a word being said of the historical events which were connected with them. We were too busy with the inquiry before us to give any attention to the surroundings, though I could see that our passengers on board the Sylvania were discussing what they saw on the mighty river. But nothing could have been more uninteresting than the banks of the river near its delta. It was a season of high water, and the lowlands beyond the levee on either side were overflowed. Occasionally we passed a vessel going down the stream, or a powerful skeleton tug dragging a ship against the rapid current. There was little to be seen besides the muddy flow of the stream all around us, and the fringe of trees that grew on the levee. If the theory we had advanced and supported by such evidence as we had was correct, the four thousand dollars the bank messenger had lost were on board the islander. If Nick had taken the package, he had not left it behind him when he started out on his travels. We went down into the after cabin. The captain said Nick had occupied the large stateroom on the starboard side, while Cornwood had taken possession of the corresponding one on the port side. We found enough of the effects of each in his stateroom to settle the question of his occupancy of the room. Four thousand dollars was a large sum of money, and we did not expect to find it lying around loosely in the room of either. Captain Blasplow volunteered to examine Cornwood's stateroom, while I rendered the same service in that of Nick Boomsby. I found a bundle which contained the runaway's clothing. I searched it thoroughly, but there was no package of any kind in it. I opened all the drawers and lockers in the room with no better success. I tore the bed to pieces and removed the berth sack. The latter was a hair mattress of the best quality. I looked to see if it had been ripped open in any place and then felt of it in every part, but without discovering anything like a foreign substance in it. Under the berth, or rather bedstead, was a considerable space where a trunk or other package could be placed. I lighted the lamp in the stateroom and took it from the gimbals, for it was dark under the bed. I looked and felt in every part of the space, but I had no better success. I examined every hole and corner in the stateroom, but found no package as that for which I was looking. I find nothing that looks like money, I said to Colonel Shepard, who was watching the operations with deep interest. Blasblow has no better luck in the stateroom. Do you conclude from this fact that you have been mistaken, inquired the owner of the islander? I do not. I feel morally sure that Nick took the money, I replied confidently. You may be mistaken, Captain Alec added Colonel Shepard with a smile. If he took the package, we should be likely to find it in his room. 
I grant that I expected to find it here or a part of the money in this room and the rest of it in Cornwood's stateroom, I added rather warmly. There are other places where the package could have been concealed. That is true, but Nick's room was the place where he was most likely to put it. I think so myself, but Nick has had the advice of Cornwood since the islander reached Key West. Cornwood is a cunning rogue, I know. If we had suspected that Nick was on board the Islander, we might have telegraphed to the police at Key West to arrest him and detain the steamer, I continued. I am satisfied that Cornwood would not have gone to Key West if he had not expected to find Nick on board of the Islander. At least he would not have gone without the hundred dollars he asked to pay his expenses in advance. Your logic seems to be entirely correct. But the facts so far do not seem to bear out the theory, laughed the colonel. But I have recovered my steam yacht, and I am entirely happy over the results so far. I have no desire to prove that Nick Boomsby is a thief and a rascal. On the contrary, I should be glad to have him relieved of the suspicion that hangs to him just now. Cornwood may have considered that the staterooms were the most unsafe places on board of the vessel to conceal the money. And even Nick himself may have come to this conclusion before he had seen Cornwood. There is some reason in that, said the colonel. Everybody in Jacksonville knew that both yachts were bound to New Orleans. Nick may have suggested that he would be charged with the robbery. He is old enough to understand all about the telegraph, and he may have put the money where it was not likely to be found, or, if found, might not appear to have any connection with it. Captain Blasblow had made as thorough a search in the port as I had in the starboard stateroom, and had joined us in the cabin while we were talking about the matter. He seemed to fall in with our reasoning and expressed his satisfaction that he had not been boarded by officers who might have suspected him of being concerned in the robbery of the bank messenger. Cornwood has been on board of the Islander three days now, I said. Have you seen much of him, Captain Blastblow, during this time? Very little indeed. From the time he came on board Sunday, I think I hardly saw him at all until Monday afternoon. He was in close conversation with Mr. Boomsby most of the time, the steward said to me. The first night they sat up till after midnight, and Lonsdale says there was a good deal of strong talk going between them, replied the captain. Do you know what it was about, I asked? I haven't the least idea. I inquired how the passengers were getting on, and Lonsdale told me he thought they were in some kind of a quarrel. You don't spend any of your time in the cabin, do you, Captain Blastblow, asked the owner. I haven't had time even to come into it on this trip, though I intended to go through it every day to see that everything is in order. I have had all I could do the last week to look out for the vessel with two heavy gales and plenty of fog, replied the captain. 
I had to make a harbor at Matanzas Inlet, and again at Tavernier's, for I was afraid this little craft would roll her engine out of her. We kept on through the whole of it Friday night, I added. You were outside of the reef, and you could not make a harbor, reported Captain Blastblow. But I got to Key West two hours before you did. You did not go to the assistance of a wrecked bark as I did, and land her ship's company in Key West, I replied. The captain of the islander wanted to know about the wreck, and at another time I told him all about it. We were too much concerned in verifying our theory in relation to the robbery in Jacksonville to agree to any long discretion. Is the steward the only person who has been a constant visitor to the cabin? I asked. Gibbs, the waiter, did all the work in the cabin, and he must have seen more of the passengers than even the steward, replied the captain. Where is Gibbs? Probably on deck or asleep in some corner. Perhaps we had better call the steward and waiter, suggested Colonel Shepard. The captain went to the head of the companionway and called the steward. Mr. Lonsdale had not spent much time in the cabin, though he slept in one of the berths abaft the staterooms. He confirmed the statement of the captain that there had been a great deal of earnest conversation between the Floridian and the young swell. He never listened to private conversation, and he had not the remotest idea what they were talking about. Perhaps Gibbs, the waiter, might know more about the matter than he did. Gibbs was found to be fast asleep on a sofa in the after part of the cabin. He knew nothing at all about what had happened since the islander came into the river and appeared to be not a little surprised when he saw the owner and myself. He was a light mulatto, a very good-looking fellow, and I judged that he was intelligent. "'Where are the passengers, Gibbs?' asked Captain Blastblow. "'I don't know, sir.' Somewhere about the vessel, I suppose. Most likely asleep in the staterooms, replied the waiter. Where do they spend their time when they are below, continued the captain in an easy and an indifferent tone. Gibbs answered the question in a very indefinite manner. The passengers were mostly in their staterooms, on the sofa, or sitting in the chairs. Have you noticed them in any particular place in the cabin except in their staterooms? In the chairs or on the sofas, I asked with considerable energy, for the waiter seemed to be rather stupid and bewildered, and I thought he needed something to wake him up. Yes, sir, I have seen them both on the cabin floor this morning, answered Gibbs, with more life to his tones and manner than I had seen before. On the floor, exclaimed Colonel Shepard. What were they doing on the floor? I don't know, sir. I had cleared away the breakfast dishes and went on deck to smoke. I found it a little cool, and I came down again for my coat, replied Gibbs, talking quite glibly now. As soon as I came downstairs, they got up. Where were they at the time, I inquired. Right under the companionway, sir. And you could not tell what they were doing on the floor? No, sir, they were crawling out from under the companionway when I saw them. We questioned the steward and the waiter for some time longer, but we got nothing more out of them. 
We asked the captain to send them on deck and to direct Captain Cayo and Buck Lingley not to allow any person to communicate with their prisoners. The companionway consisted of stairs with steps, but with no risers to obstruct the light from the stern post. It was not probable that the passengers had secreted the bills forming the packages in such a place as this, but we carefully examined every foot of space under the companionway. We were about to give up the search in this part of the cabin when I felt something under the carpet, beneath the lower step. I found that a portion of the carpet had been torn up and pulled it over. Reaching it again, I felt the package more distinctly, but I was disappointed because it seemed to be too small for the one that had been lost. I drew it out. This can't be it, I said. It's not more than half the size of the one the messenger laid on the counter in the saloon. It ought not to be more than half as large, added the colonel. It appears that there had been some earnest talk among the passengers of the islander. What could this have been about except the division of the spoils? While he was speaking, I had taken off the paper which enclosed the package. It was the same color as that I had seen in the saloon. On removing the covering, I came to the two tin plates and saw a pile of money and bills between them. Of course there is only one half of the plunder, and booms be divided with cornwood, said Colonel Shepard. Where is the other half? I asked blankly. I have no doubt this half belongs to my friend, Mr. Boomsby, and I have no more doubt Cornwood would have stolen it by the time they got to New Orleans, added the colonel. We concluded that it would not be as easy to find the second half of the treasure as it had been the first. End of chapter